rich people can buy their way out. They can turn up the air conditioning. You know, they'll be fine. But how can you wake up every day having the power to change the world and choosing not to, even though you can see that this planet's on a collision course? From the Globe and Mail, this is I'll Go First. I'm Takara Small. I'm a tech journalist and founder of Venture Kids Canada. On this season of I'll Go First, we're getting up close and personal with the entrepreneurs who are changing the way our society works. We're skipping the small talk and ditching the elevator pitch. We want to find out what it takes to blaze a trail, to be the first to see a problem with the world and know that you can fix it. So we're starting this new season with someone who's creating technologies to solve the planet's greatest problem. Decades ahead, as the planet heats up, more ice here will melt with potentially... Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Canadians have plenty to say when it comes to the changing climate. Wildfires in the West, flooding in the East, and record-breaking temperatures in the Arctic are just some of the extreme changes to our weather. Predictions are that this is just the start. The economic cost is real, too. From frost-damaged crops to home repairs from violent storms and ever-declining fish stocks, the bill is really starting to add up. So we're speaking to the man who wants to fix all of that. My name is John Paul Morgan. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Morgan Solar. Morgan Solar is a solar energy technology development company that makes super-efficient solar panels and that manages light around buildings. John Paul Morgan brims with energy, and his passion for his work is immediately obvious. He views his company as more than a way to make money. It's his way of changing the world. When John arrived at our studios, he wasn't what we were expecting from the founder of an energy company. He had a scruffy beard, a baseball cap, and a warm grin. And while his motivations are partly selfless, they aren't totally what you would expect. This episode of I'll Go First is brought to you by National Car Rental, where you can skip the counter and choose any car in the aisle. Keep listening to learn even more ways to stay in the driver's seat while you're traveling for business. Why did you decide to start the company? That's a really good question. So... I decided to start the company because back in 2006, I was researching other solar companies to try to go and work for one of them. And I was looking at what everyone was doing technology-wise. And I was like, oh, this stuff's from the 70s. No one's really... uh, And I I think I was wrong. I think I totally underestimated what my competitors were doing. (laughs) But at the time, I kind of had this sense like, oh, I see a huge opportunity to do things like way better using cheaper materials. And I was like, oh, I should just start my own company to do that. And it seemed like a joke because most companies fail. And then I was like, oh, but solar energy is really important. Someone's got to figure it out. I'm probably one of the failures, but what if I'm the success and then I didn't do it? So I kind of talked myself into it like that. Do you view yourself as an environmentalist? Uh, Yeah, I mean, definitely now, yeah. Uh, To be honest, when I first started the company, I would make a point of being like, this isn't about climate change, because I thought climate change was coming in like 100 years. I didn't realize it was like right on top of us. What I was more worried about was energy poverty. I'd spent the year prior to starting the company living in Africa in the Congo in a town of 30,000 people with no motor vehicles and five electric generators. Everyone else was using kerosene lanterns and basically just getting by without electricity. 
And I was like, man, not having electricity is kind of punishing. You know, you have to transport your own water by hand rather than pumping it. You have to grind your flour by manually instead of using a mill. Like, mm-hmm. electricity is a really liberating thing. And I'm like, man, I, we got to make solar energy super cheap so that people who can't afford fossil fuel energy can have the same quality of life that we have in the electrified, developed world. So that was my main impetus at starting the company was I want to provide energy to people who can't afford energy. And then while I was doing it, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, climate change is not a future problem. It's a right now problem. And I kind of came around on it, I think, along with the rest of the world. And what was that moment? Your ideology behind the company and what you're doing shifted. When were you like, okay, climate change is just as important or maybe more so? I mean, I don't know that I'm actually there. I actually think that eliminating human suffering is the most important thing. However, climate change is going to cause a ton of human suffering. So climate change is important in as much as it's going to hurt a lot of vulnerable people. And so I don't think I've come around at all. I've just Mm -hmm. realized that the same vulnerable people that I was always worried about are going to now get impacted from all sides by like environmental calamity. Mm -hmm. And and I, I mean, I care about biodiversity. I care about wildlife tremendously. But, you know, at the end of the day, I care about my brothers and sisters on the on the world more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because individuals who are living in poverty or who are living in financial challenging times, they're the ones who are going to be impacted by changing weather patterns and by climate change more so than anyone else because they don't have the financial means to move or to improve their situation. Oh, for sure. Rich people can buy their way out. They can turn up the air conditioning. You know, they'll be fine. But that's the really terrible thing to me is that you have a lot of people in the world who are easily in a position to adapt and adjust and have a tremendous amount of essentially disposable income to spend on mitigating their own discomfort against a changing climate. And meanwhile, they're not willing to commit that money that they have that they're going to spend on climate change in the future to spend it now to avoid climate change from happening at all. Why do you think people who do have the financial means to adapt and adjust, like you said, aren't? I think people are really fundamentally very selfish. There's a lot of good in the world. And if I meet a person on the street, I assume they're probably a good person. But yeah, I mean, there's no other explanation for it. How can you wake up every day having the power to change the world and choosing not to, choosing to continue to reinforce the status quo, even though you can see that this planet's on a collision course? I I don't see how you can do that and be, be a very moral person. Do you feel like you're educating individuals at the same time as trying to sell them a solution that is more environmentally friendly? I kind of keep this stuff out of the day-to-day interactions with Morgan Solar because, frankly, because people are a bit selfish, I'm not going to make 10,000 sales or a million sales appealing to heartstrings. And so at the end of the day, you have to, it has to be about just dollars and cents. And so we're always just trying to make the most efficient, the least costly, the simplest, the easiest to use, the easiest to communicate. A lot of what we're doing right now, a lot of our current focus uh, and new products that we're rolling out are actually software-oriented and web-oriented so that... Um, well, actually, I'd have to get into way too much detail to explain it. So maybe we can go down that rabbit hole. No, let's do it. I'm interested. I'm interested. Okay. So right now, a big problem from a global climate change perspective is cities. And within cities, buildings are one of the main causes of energy use. And yet, when it comes to considering questions about the energy envelope of a building, how much solar energy hits it in the summer and how hard that has to push the air conditioning because it heats up the building, how much heat it loses in the winter. You end up getting a kind of a complicated technical question that to even begin to answer 
you have to go and hire some consultant and pay them fifteen, twenty, sixty thousand dollars to do some proprietary software studies for you to generate some reports being like, here's your energy opportunity, here's how much you're wasting, here's all this information back. And then you can use that to decide if you're going to do something or not. So what we're trying to do is basically make that whole exploratory phase frictionless. So the website that we're going to be launching in the new year is going to, at its core, be a kind of a map-based interface. You're going to open it up. It's like Google Maps-ish. And you're going to scroll around, you're going to find where you're interested in, in checking out. And then once you've selected a spot, boom, it's going to explode into like a 3D map view. Nothing novel there. I mean, you can look at a 3D map on Google Earth. Mm -hmm. But then it's going to do a ton of back-end in-depth solar analysis on like, okay, how much solar energy is hitting this building from where? How much shadow is it getting from other buildings? And it's going to quickly characterize the uh, energy opportunity that the building represents. And then it's going to let the user select any of a huge catalog of different things you could do. Upgrade the insulation, change the windows, put in solar panels on the facade, put in solar panel windows that are kind of translucent. This is going to include products that, that my company makes as well as products that my competitors make um, and that, you know, just standard products off the shelf. And that'll let someone essentially explore options for their building and come up with ideas of ways to massively reduce the CO2 emissions of the building. And that'll be 15 minutes on an interactive website, where at the end of it, you get all these great reports, you get all this data out of it, you can click a button to buy it from us or uh, et cetera. And all of that without having to plunk down a ton of money and wait weeks for a consultant to go away, do their work, and then bring back a report that's then, you know, it's a, it's a document, but it's not actionable immediately. And people have done it already for rooftop solar. So this, what I'm talking about, essentially exists in a few different forms for like a single family home, suburban residential rooftop solar, where all you're dealing with is maybe there's a few trees, maybe there's a little bit of shadow, but generally speaking, it's a fairly simple situation. And you can just use satellite images to be like, oh, I can guess how much energy this thing's going to have. And you can make predictions. Things get really complicated when you've got 3D buildings and huge buildings casting shadows on each other, and nothing exists for, to solve that problem right now. And also nothing exists that lets you do this on a website in software beyond solar panels, because solar panels aren't always the best way to reduce greenhouse gases from a building. Oh, go into that. Well, I mean, here in Toronto or in BC, where we're doing a lot of work, the grid is relatively clean. We do burn a bit of natural gas in Ontario to make electricity, but most of it, the majority comes from wind, solar, nuclear, and hydro. So it's zero carbon electricity for the most part in Ontario. And that means that if you're looking to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of a particular home or a building, you just got to terminate the natural gas. Solar panels are going to generate more electricity, and yeah, it'll be clean, but that's just going to replace clean electricity. Right. I'm not saying I, I think solar panels are a great business case in Ontario. They they can save you money, mm -hmm. but they're not going to reduce your environmental impact on the climate. So insulation, eliminating heating, eliminating natural gas, those are the most important things to do. How can you convince individuals who don't believe in the effects of climate change if, for instance, their livelihood does depend on it? It seems like you're waging a war that's almost impossible to win. That may be true. And if it's a war that's impossible to win, it's a war I'd rather die fighting than give up on, right? I, this is kind of like when I started the company in the first place. When I first started the company, I'm like, yeah, this is this company's probably not going to work out. Most, most companies fail in their first couple of years. But that doesn't mean that you don't try. 
And so, yeah, this is a tough fight. I, I think fundamentally, the reason the climate change fight is so hard is because if I own an oil well, or if I own a pipeline, or if I own like a big piece of infrastructure, I have the expectation that I'm going to continue to collect revenue from that in perpetuity. These are revenue streams that are owned by very wealthy people and very wealthy families and whatever. And they don't anticipate that those taps are getting turned off anytime soon. And we need to turn off those taps. And so we need to say, sorry, rich families of the world, but your revenue streams are going to dry up. So you got to diversify and get other revenue streams or just, you know, live within your means with what you got so far. You know, we're talking obviously billions and millions of dollars a year flowing from everyone because we buy gas and we buy products that are shipped with gas and we heat our homes with natural gas, blah, blah, blah. So that's this transfer from all of humanity collectively to some very small fraction of humanity. So there's a willingness to really put up massive barriers. You know, Exxon is the most famous case of this, where they've been financing climate denial and obfuscation for decades. They knew in the 70s. So right now, one of our most exciting products is actually based on initial work done by Exxon in 1978, the year I was born. Oh, wow. And I, we were working on this, and then I found this old patent from 1978. I'm like, hang on. They were on to something here. And if they had just followed through on that work from 40 years ago, they, I think, realized, well, we're making a lot of money under the status quo. We could probably ride this out for a couple more decades before we have to worry about it. So instead of taking action on climate change in the 80s, when it was being seriously discussed, instead they just financed this huge political machine and think tanks and... BS scientists to just sort of spread doubt. And now the fruits of that are the ignorance of a lot of people who just don't believe in it, don't want to believe in it, or even have adopted like a contrarian view of like, well, I think it's going to be good and I'm going to actually push for climate change. On Twitter, I'm always seeing people making jokes about like, you know, one person's like, oh, I'm going to stop flying. So I've stopped flying. I've, I've stopped. How do you? I drive move? around an electric car. If I need to go somewhere... And well, let's just say you have to fly to a conference in the U.S., though. So. I'll turn it down or I'll drive. So I was recently invited to a great conference in Copenhagen. And I was like, thank you so much. I'm not going to be able to attend. Do you believe in carbon offsetting? Uh, not, not really. I mean, I think it's better than nothing, but I think it's worse than just not emitting the carbon, right? You can recycle a plastic bag or you can just not take it from the store in the first place. And that's the better thing. It's better to just refuse like introducing it into the waste stream. And the same with CO2. You can emit it and then be like, well, I hope that this money I'm paying to these people to plant these trees makes up for what the, the ill that I've done, but maybe just don't do the ill. And so what experience did you have before you started the business, though, in the solar industry? So in the solar industry directly, the only experience I had was my undergrad thesis. So back in 2001, when I was doing my undergraduate thesis, that was on a kind of thin film solar panel. But then after undergrad, I went to go and work in uh, fiber optics. So I went and worked for this company called JDS Uniphase in Ottawa. And I had a great short career there. I was there for three years. I loved it. I got noticed kind of on right away on my second or third day. I put up my hand in a meeting and suggested an idea that then became my first patent. So oh, wow. I, they were just trying to solve some problem. And I was like, well, here's an obvious solution to the problem that you guys are talking about. Yeah. I'm just like throwing it out there. And then, yeah, it, uh, people laughed at it at the time. And then a couple of weeks later, it's like, oh, yeah, that was a good idea. Let's do that. And so they did. They kind of built this little, you know, it was like a little tweak. It wasn't like a major breakthrough. Or but anything. you still have that patent. 
yeah, it's still yeah. probably in effect for like another year or two. I got a dollar for it. They bought it off me for a dollar. It was like a, not a technicality. What do you call that? A formality. Mm. I had to sign a thing. They're like, here's, thank you for the invention. Do here's a dollar. Do you regret selling that invention I, for a dollar? I had no choice. I was an employee. Like oh, that okay. was, those were the rules. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. It annoys me that you only got a dollar for that. <laughs> no, but I, I also got three years of gainful employment. And because I got noticed by the higher ups for solving a big problem, they gave me a bunch of interesting projects. They're like, can you do this? Can you do that? Try this and that. And plus, I could totally phone it in if I didn't want to work. Yeah. Like, I was just like, they're like, well, he's probably working on something good. Yes, so, exactly. like, don't worry that he's just reading, you know, yeah. uh, blogs. Um, and so I did that for a bunch of years. I learned about R&D. I learned about how to develop new products. The main thing that I learned at JDS Uniphase, what I always tell people, is that we were on the absolute cutting edge of fiber optics communication. So we were building the fastest routers for fiber optics of anyone in the world by a lot. The way sometimes we prototype it, I remember there'd be like four people standing around a workbench in the optics lab, and one of the technicians is pushing a prism with a Q-tip to like line it up while like watching a number on a dial. And then he'd be like, oh, there, stop. Hit it with the UV gun to lock it in place. Good. Oh, wow. Now let's package it and sell it for $100,000. We would do that. It's like, oh, I get it. The cutting edge, being at the pinnacle of human performance in a technology space, the cutting edge literally just needs an empty room and a table and four people to sit around it to hash out a problem for three months. And if you can get enough money together to pull a little team together and work on a problem, you can do something that hasn't ever been done before and you can do it better than it's ever been done. Sounds exhilarating. Yeah. It was liberating. It was yeah. realizing that it's like, okay, I can do things that no one else has ever done before and it's a breeze. And everyone can. It's not just me. There is no barrier to innovation. So I did JD's Universe for a while and then I went into the masters. I, I didn't want to build the internet. Uh, I looked at what we were doing there and I'm like, this is neat, but if I step away, someone else is going to come and do this job. They'll just hire someone else. And I'm like thinking to myself, what is the thing that I can do in the world that's going to actually help people? Because uh, I don't think faster internet is it. And so I went away and I did a, a, a master's degree in medical imaging. So I was working with like MRI machines, doing some interesting stuff there. And then while I was doing this degree, I ran into a friend who worked for Doctors Without Borders. And I was like, oh, you're, you work for Doctors Without Borders. Tell me about that. Where? where? And he's like, I'm in the Sudan. I'm doing this and that. And we started talking and I came to learn some things. I came to learn that 60% uh, at that time anyway of needles used for vaccinations were unsterilized. I came to learn that a lot of kids didn't have access to measles vaccines. And I came to realize it's like, oh, MRI machines being better isn't the barrier to helping humanity deal with healthcare. Like it's a lower tech problem than that. And the cutting edge of medical technology is just going to help rich people live a couple of years longer. And I'd rather make 100 people live for 20 more years than make a few people live for, for five more years. So I finished my master's. I, I kind of wanted to quit it, but I was like, whatever, I'll just write my thesis, get it done. And then I actually took a job with Doctors Without Borders. I went to Africa and I, I got exposed to what it means to be without electricity. And that's kind of when everything clicked in my head. I'm like, okay, I, I know what I need to do. Like my mission is electricity, is electricity for everyone, it's clean electricity. And that kind of just became, yeah, my obsession. Your dad helped you with the initial investment. Yeah, yeah. What's that like having your dad as an investor in your company? Honestly, 
Sorry. Yeah, honestly, it's fine. Like, it was good. And, and in fact, now my dad works for me. When I started the company, my dad was living in Spain. He worked for Ernst Young when I was younger. And then Ernst Young got acquired by this French headquartered company. My dad is a native uh, Latin American Spanish speaker. So he got co-opted and moved over to their Spanish office and was working in Madrid. And he was getting toward the age of retirement. And I felt like uh, I wanted I wanted to work with him. And so I asked him to come and join the company and basically come and work for me. And I couldn't pay him as much as they were paying him. But I just, I know how he's got an incredible work ethic. He's super smart and I really admire him. And so I just wanted to bring him on board. And it is something that people do a double take at. But if you ask anyone who works with us, it's like, yeah, we are family, but we don't, we're not family in the way like the Trumps where we just let each other get away with nothing and we're all phoning it in. No, we push each other to work really hard. We're like really demanding of each other. And I know I can count on them to like take care of what I put them in charge of. But yeah, I don't know. I just really like, I like being around my dad. Yeah. <laughs> that's weird. I know that's weird for an No, it's not. And your brother too. <laughs> and so my was brother that, too. Was that when you started? Well, that, was, the... that was from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. When you started the company, was that just out of necessity because you wanted to work with someone who maybe perhaps understood the mission and wouldn't ask for too much? No, no. Well, I mean, definitely part of it. I used to joke that the reason that I wanted family is because I could pay them, you know, way under market. But I think in the case of my brother, he just was so excited by what I was working on. He was also living in, in, in Europe and he came to visit right when I first started the company and I hadn't even incorporated yet. I was just still tinkering with ideas in my backyard. And he came over was like tinkering around with me and just was like, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to come and do this with you. This is so amazing. I just need to. And I remember at the time being like, oh man, no, don't, don't. I can't handle your salary. Like, I don't do it. But he's like, no, it's fine. I'll just do it. And then he did. You have a two-year-old at home. How has that impacted your business, your career? It has definitely made me far more efficient with my time. It has made me much better at just like hammering through things and getting to end of job. So I find that I don't get stuck as often as I used to. Sometimes I would, I'd be uncertain as to what way to proceed. And I would kind of pause or hang at a precipice for days. And I never do that anymore. I get to the precipice and I'm like, okay, going this way. Decision made, move on. And not that I'm always making the right decision, but I'm making decisions way faster. And I think part of that is that I want to get home for dinner. I want to give him a bath. I want to get him in bed. And then I want to get back to work. And I think that time management thing has definitely become a key part of being able to do that. And I think that the work is every bit as important. You know, I've always felt like I was working for future generations and like people with less advantages than me. And, uh, you know, my son is one among them, right? So he's, and I want a better world for him too, for sure. I'm curious, what was your childhood like? Ah, well, so I'm the middle child, six kids. Six kids? Six kids. So I was the third of six. And... What was that like? It was awesome. I loved my siblings. My dad worked super hard. My dad's great, but he worked like crazy and was like always on the road for like just a road warrior. And uh, me and my siblings would be at home and, and my mom and... We'd kind of take care of each other. I, My brother taught me how to read, taught me math. I taught my brother how to read. I changed diapers. So, you know, you were, I was like an old enough sibling to be semi-fatherly, but I was super independent. From a very young age, I would just go off on my own in the world and just kind of wander. My mom would take me to church and drop me off because I'd miss church. 
because I slept in. And then she'd take me to afternoon mass and drop me off and be like, okay, I'll pick you up. And I was like, no, I'll just walk home after church. I walk in the door, my mom takes off, and I walk out the door. <laughs> and those hours, those Sunday hours when I was unaccounted for, were the greatest. I would just do whatever. I'd go to the river and skip stones or explore some woods. or I, I just like to kind of uh, wander around, meet people, mm-hmm. get to know people. And then I, I kept doing that when I became an adolescent. I would still just enjoy kind of aimless wandering and and meeting random people and getting into little misadventures and helping people out sometimes when you can. I don't know. So I had a pretty idyllic, easy life, kind of sheltered from any kind of challenge. And school, I I, I failed grade two, which was tough, right? But then the second time I did grade two, I'm like, I've already done all this. I know all the answers already. So I finished it really quickly. And then before grade two is done, I'm like, well, can I see the grade three textbooks? And then the teacher's like, okay, fine, here you go. And then I kind of got a head start. So by the time next year I was in grade three, I'm like, I already know all the answers. And I kind of, in this weird way, I got ahead of the curve in grade two and stayed there all through my education, which just made it all easy, essentially. This innate curiosity you had as a child, as an adult, did that ever get you in trouble, though? Almost, but good luck. So, like, I've had a number of encounters with dangerous armed people in different places. Right, yes. And have always just sort of skipped over it like a stone on water. Can you tell me, give me one example? (laughs) There's two that are pretty good. One of them was I was (laughs) was in La Paz, Bolivia um, when I was like in my early 20s. And I just went on a random hike out of the city up the valley wall up to the Altiplano into this huge sprawling slum. I don't want to call it a slum, but it was like this place called El Alto, which was at that time referred to as a slum. It was the fastest growing city in in Latin America. And it was just this, yeah, it was this crazy, beautiful, weird place and just teeming with people. And I just was wandering around in it. And tourists never, never really were going there at that time. And these five dudes saw me and they saw that I had this like Pentax SLR camera. And they're like, hey. You were traveling with it. Yeah, of course. And they're like, Give us your camera. And I was like, guys, no tourists ever come up here, right? So I know you've never robbed anyone because there's never been anyone to rob. Wait, I'm sorry. You had this discussion with them? Yeah, I just had this discussion with them. I was like, guys, this isn't like, I get what you're saying. But at the same time, you're not really, your heart's not in it. And I can see that your heart's not in it. Oh, my God. And then they were like, and then they were like, well, (sighs) no, but we're serious. I'm like, yeah, but you're not. If you were serious, I would know. And you would know. Here, let me take a picture of you guys. You guys look, like, get together. You guys look great. And then I started talking to this guy next to me and being like, these kids, can you believe it? I mean, uh, well, I guess. And, like, I was like, I get it. I get that you want the camera, but, like, you, you know, you're not really robbers. And they were kind of like, yeah, I guess we're not really robbers. And they just, like, gave up. And I find sometimes when people, people try to escalate a situation, people try to, like, make it into, a, like, this a violent explosion. And if you just sort of don't be patronizing, but be like, I'm here with you. I see what you're doing and I understand maybe why you're doing it, but let's talk about other things that we could be doing. Right. I find that that actually gets across. Do you think being a white male may have played a part in some of these outcomes? Absolutely. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I had no idea at the time what a trump card that was. But definitely, definitely, there was a huge dose of like white savior garbage in my bloodstream at the time. And like I was really, you know kind of loving it and feeling it because it actually feels great to be like to have the whole like village love you yeah it's yeah. wonderful 
and then you kind of reflect on it and you're like, oh, but if I had if I had been born with a different skin color, I'd never have those opportunities. I'd never get away with that garbage. But white people have no problem just sailing through life because they never encounter friction. People who see them are like, oh, right this way. <laughs> like, I've literally had this happen. I was in uh, the uh, Beijing airport flying home and I was running a little late and I'd, I I was wearing this excellent suit. I'd I bought the suit just for this meeting because I really wanted to impress the guy that we were meeting. And I was like, well, they care a lot about looks and appearance. So I'm like, boom, great suit, great shoes. Look like, the part. Look the part. I looked great. And so I'm at the, I'm at the uh, check-in counter and the agent looks at me and is like, oh God, this guy must be important. And he's like, hang on. And he radios a, a cop who comes and basically shepherds me through security through the whole airport and is constantly being like, everyone out of the way, everyone out of the oh way. My God. This unnamed important white guy is coming, and I'm just like, this is hilarious, but also, oh my god, like, why are they doing this for me? I didn't like, I, I didn't ask for it. I was just like, oh, am I going to make my flight? And he's like, you know what, you might not, and so I'm going to like move. And the guy, the guard was like shoving people out of the line. He's like, make way. And at the time, I, I, I was kind of loving it, but then, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, I didn't earn this. Yeah. So when I say I'm lucky, definitely, like, whiteness is a huge part of being lucky. Yeah. Like that is a huge problem with the world that has to get fixed. Look, tech moves fast. I mean, your phone went through four updates in the time it took to save it. Good thing National Car Rental moves at the speed of technology. They're on the cutting edge of control, pairing their industry-leading app to a fleet of the most recent cars featuring the latest advancements. Making all others feel as dated as the flip phone. Go national. Go like a pro. Subject to availability and other restrictions requires enrollment in the complimentary Emerald Club. So we're going to move on to a fan favorite, which is called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and you just have to answer as quickly as you possibly can. What do you do for fun? Uh, Bike ride and play with my two-year-old. What motivates you? I just like work. What's your perfect day off? My parents have a lake house. I'm there. I'm on the dock with my two-year-old. It's it's nice. It's sunny. What's your greatest fear? My greatest fear is maybe dying... (laughs) I don't want my two-year-old to not have a dad. Aww. Yeah. I don't want to die. That would suck. Like, yeah. I, used to, I used to not care. But now I'm like, oh, man, it would suck for him. It would suck for Catherine, my wife, and it would suck for Luke. I was just like, I don't want to leave them out in the lurch. Mm. What's one word your friends would use to describe you? Um, intense. Obsessive. <laughs> Those are two words. <laughs> Favorite hobby? I, You know, I love video games. I don't get to play them very much, but I love them. The original Super Mario Brothers... I finished that in a mirror once. like In I, a mirror? Yeah, like you put a mirror facing the TV, you face the mirror, and you play backwards, and you have to like reprogram your brain. And I finished it start to end, and then I stood up and fell over because I couldn't walk anymore because my brain had been rewired. How did you even come up with the idea to do that? I just, I think I'd finished it so many times as a kid that I just started like upping. So I would make my own rules. It's like, I've got to finish it, but I can't take any mushrooms, and I can't die. And as soon as I die, I turn it off. Okay, so yeah, that is it. Sweet. You, you, you made it through. We're done. Good. <laughs> okay. The next section is called the big three. So I'm going to okay. ask you a couple questions. Sure. You can take as much time as you want. That's good. That's why they're yes, big. Exactly. Um, I can ramble. I'm genuinely interested. You don't have to worry about that. I appreciate that. it. That's so nice. <laughs> What's one thing that's helped define your career? Wow. One thing. 
like, so back before we were funded, we'd built a few different little prototypes. We'd done different stuff like that. And we were testing some things. And then this amazing journalist named Tyler Hamilton, who for years wrote a column in the Toronto Star called uh, Clean Break. And so he found out about us and he came to visit and he did a, a piece on us in the Toronto Star. It was just like two guys in Toronto trying to start a solar energy company. They don't really know much, but they're doing some neat things. And like we had some cool looking stuff to show him with lasers. And I don't know we were kind of doing technical demonstrations of what our technology and ideas were. And he thought they were cool. And then he wrote an MIT technology review piece that got in the MIT technology review. And then some guy who used to work for General Electric, who was like the chief innovation officer for General Electric, he's flipping through it and he read that and he's like, hmm, I should call these guys. And so he called us and he's like, I just read about you guys. Maybe we're interested in investing some money in what you're doing. And I was like, well, isn't that something? <laughs> and they ended up putting money in and then that led to, you know, once you get the first money in, then other investors like, oh, hang on, what, what's going on? Like, yeah. what, what's the deal? And then other people got in and everything was great. What's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Uh, make the business software oriented from the, from the first moment. The reason I, I'm so excited about what we're doing now, where we're taking this like decade of intellectual property and technical advancement and software expertise and just putting it on the web, I think that that is going to scale so much faster than traditional business development can mm -hmm. scale. Uh, because people are always hesitant to like pick up a phone, they're always hesitant to like pay a consultant, but no one's ever hesitant to poke around on a website. Where do you see yourself in five years? Jeez, where do I see myself in five I always ask people this in an interview. It's a super unfair question. I think in five years, I will have a seven-year-old, which will be kind of great. I think that we'll have also started working on more energy storage areas, because I think like obviously energy storage goes hand in hand with energy generation. So can you talk a little bit about energy storage? What does that mean? I mean, so so energy storage is just like a, a battery is a form of energy storage. It's just, you know, but you can also store heat energy in, in all sorts of different ways. So we're working on a really cool project right now. So this is like if you go up to Don Mills near the Science Center right now at the Ontario Architecture Association headquarters, they're doing an epic project that we're participating in. So they're using some of our hardware where they're going to completely get rid of all their CO2 emissions from the building. And the way they're going to heat themselves in the winter is the following. All summer long, all these solar panels are generating a ton of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got solar thermal collectors, like gathering hot water, uh, as well as solar panels, including ours, making you know electrons. And the heat from the water, as well as the electricity from the panels, is used to like pump that down into deep boreholes in the ground. So they've dug these deep wells down into the ground and they're just pumping heat down into the earth in like under their parking lot. And that earth underground is going to get warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer all summer long. And then in the winter, they're just going to pull that heat back out and heat the building. And that's it. So where can people find you? You can find me online at John Paul Morgan, J-O-H-N-P-A-U-L-M-O-R-G-A-N on Twitter. And you should check out what my company's doing at our website, www.morgansolar.com. That was John Paul Morgan, who I'm thankful to for sharing his story with me. We're going to be back each week with a new episode from another person who is changing the way our world works. Next week, we're the most ambitious generation with the most access to data at our fingertips, except what's for most of us, one of the biggest decisions of our lives, you know, when and whether and how to have kids. 
We also want to hear your story. You can reach me online at Takara Small on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email the show at podcasts at globalmail.com. I'll Go First is a Vocal Fry Studios production. Our producer is Jay Coburn, with research done by Cecilia Keating. Our executive producers are Kieran Rana and Katie Jensen. For more stories about entrepreneurship, make sure to visit theglobalmail.com and subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Takara Small, and this has been I'll Go First. See you next episode. <laughs>